Do you invest in ETFs? Whether you're thinking, what in the world is an ETF? Or you're looking for the next opportunity to add to your portfolio. GlobalX has you covered. From big tech to bonds and bars of gold, GlobalX offers a wide range of exchange-traded funds. Go beyond ordinary with GlobalX ETFs. Visit globalxetfs.com.au. That's globalxetfs.com.au. Are you thinking about starting your wealth-creating journey but not sure where to put your hard-earned dollars? InvestSmart can help. InvestSmart offers a free quiz that makes it easy to find the right InvestSmart ETF portfolio to help you reach your goals. Just visit investsmart.com.au and hit get started. Answer a few simple questions about your goals and how much you want to invest and you'll get a tailored statement of advice with a portfolio recommendation. You can visit investsmart.com.au for a no obligations free statement of advice. This ad is brought to you by InvestSmart Advice, AFSL 334107. Hey there, here's a quick note. This podcast contains general financial advice only. That means it's not specific to you, your needs, goals, or objectives. So don't act on the information until you've spoken with your financial advisor. You'll find our full disclosure, disclaimer, and link to our financial services guide in the show notes. If you're the type of investor who likes to broaden their horizons and think beyond public markets, this episode on private versus public markets investing featuring Brian Gilday, a managing director at Hamilton Lane and head of Evergreen Portfolios, is for you. In this episode, Brian and I talk about the differences between private markets investing, in particular private company investing, and public equities, and the differences that the liquidity and, I guess, information asymmetry can present for private company and private markets investors. This is a fantastic episode if you want to broaden your horizon and learn about this emerging part of the ecosystem, the investments ecosystem, including private equity, and why it's not just venture capital that you should be paying attention to. I hope you enjoyed this episode of the Australian Investors Podcast featuring Brian Gilday of Hamilton Lane. Brian, thanks for taking some time to join me on the Australian Investors Podcast. Oh, it's great to be here. Thanks for having me. Where are you, uh, where are you joining us from today? I am joining from our global headquarters uh, just outside of Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, in a town called Conshohocken. Conshohocken. I did, when I was researching, I did look it up and I was thinking, how do I pronounce that? And I thought I'd, <laughs> I'd, I'd wait for you to do it. Um, and I'm not going to try. It's not easy. It. <laughs> it's not easy. It's a nice place, though. Yeah, it's, uh, it's just after 5 p.m. where you are. It's 8 a.m. where I am. I really appreciate you taking the time out and talk about particularly private markets. And I, I'm really eager to get into this, Brian, because we actually don't speak to a lot of private market investors and particularly global private market investors. So mm-hmm. to have you on the show and to bring your insights into the conversation is going to be fantastic. But what I'd like to do just to break the ice, mate, is to just hear a little bit about you. So we'll start with some very simple questions. Uh, these are probably, if you've been on enough podcasts, you probably get these a hundred times, but um, I'm going to ask, what is your worst investment and what is your best investment? Sure. Well, I, th- I think those are both pretty easy. Um, so my worst investment actually was the first private equity deal I ever did uh, approaching 25 years ago at this point. So um, really interesting situation. I think fortunately for me, you learn a lot more from your failures than from your successes. Um, but I certainly learned a lot in that first investment. It was a take private of a business uh, at that point in time. And the, the thesis didn't work out the way we expected, but learned a ton. Mm-hmm. Um, terms of uh, my best investment, actually, it's my investment in Hamilton Lane shares. So mm-hmm. currently, we're a publicly traded company, but we actually 
um, were private when I joined the firm. And we've always had a big philosophy of, of inside um, employee ownership as part mm. of the firm. So I purchased shares along the way and uh, that's been very successful. Mm, great. I, uh, I did watch a panel interview and I'm going to say it was... W- you may have appeared, it may have been 2017. I, I don't know the exact year off the top of my head. It was quite a while ago. And a topic of the conversation was incentive structure and how important that is, not just in you know uh, man- for managers themselves, but basically everyone in an organization. So I found that really interesting hearing some of the different takes and, and your input on that too. Um, this, this next point is, this next question is another fairly simple one, but it does sometimes get a little bit dicey for the guests to answer, which is, who is the best investor or just an investor that you can think of that has been a delight to work with? Someone that you've learned a lot from over your journey. Sure. And, and this may be equally as dicey for me as for your others in that I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to give you a, uh, an answer that's not one name or one person. So um, one of the things I really like best about working at Hamilton Lane um, is the number of people that I interact with both at our firm, those can be mentors, peers, others, but also managers, uh, external managers. So because of our global network, we have the benefit of working with the groups that we think are the best investors globally. And it's really a treat to be able to do that. Um, so rather than, than picking one person or one skill across everything <laughs> that we do, um, what I would actually say is I, I think that the investors that are best, the, the actionable skill is that each of them has a framework that works for them and their way of investing. And they really stick with it. So if they're a value investor, they don't, they don't you know, move out of their skill set and try to challenge growth or find other things that are different. They really stick to that framework. And I I have found that is incredibly consistent amongst the best managers in the world. Mm. And I think that's, I I see that a lot. Um, Obviously the last two decades, and we'll get into that. um, We've seen a lot of drift and style shift amongst managers. They've gone from deep value, value growth at a reasonable price (laughs) growth and now they're questioning that move, right? And mm-hmm. so you do want professionals to stick to their knitting. So I, I, I echo your sentiment there. And, okay. it's, and it's easy and it's easy when things look rosy in other places to, to drift away. And uh, that's, that's probably the wrong time to do it. So I think those mm-hmm. most disciplined investors are, are really great at not doing that. Mm, absolutely. So the last one, which is just a quick fire here, Brian, which is um, what's your favorite thing to do on a Saturday morning? Sure. I, I've got uh, I've got two answers for you, and I am a morning person. So, I've I've got uh, I've got the morning where I wake up early, I exercise, I read coffee, or I have coffee, eat breakfast, and read the newspaper. That is a phenomenal Saturday morning. My other type of Saturday morning is to wake up and to play golf with friends. So, since the pandemic started, great way to be outside a little bit, socialize a little bit, um, and I do enjoy golf. So that would be the other way to spend a Saturday morning. Oh, I really like that answer. Um, I'm not much of a golfer myself, I've got to admit, Brian, but um, just being out in the fresh air and just hearing the birds and just bringing, taking it all in is just so lovely. I, I'd, I'd go along and just watch my friends play golf. <laughs> <laughs> That's a big part of the fun. Yeah. It's a big part of the fun. Uh, Brian, I was looking at your your CV, if you like, your um, just basically where you've been and what you've done over the, the decades that you've been in markets and starting out in M&A and um, moving through some really interesting firms. Um, I know it's a lot to cover and maybe you can, you can maybe just give us the highlights really, if you like, of the kind of the, the experiences that you had, you know, coming out of university, going into, going onto Wall Street, and then basically what led you up to Hamilton Lane and where you are today? Sure. Yeah, no, happy to do that. Um, 
And I'll try to do that succinctly. As you mentioned, so I did start my, I started my career uh, at a firm called Solomon Brothers uh, in the Mergers and Acquisitions Group in New York. And Solomon Brothers, you, as you may know, is famous uh, mm. partially from a book called Liar's Poker by Michael Lewis, which is a great read. Mm-hmm. Um, I like to say I was actually part of the last analyst class ever hired by Solomon Brothers because the industry then went through a wave of consolidation and mergers uh, as all those firms kind of paired up and, and grew bigger. So I was part of that last analyst class um, and I loved it. It was a an environment where I worked too much and my quality of life was not so great, but um, worked with some really interesting people and I learned a ton. And for me, that really um, helped open the doors to, to think about what I wanted to do next. Um, which was private equity. So um, I didn't know I wanted to do private equity. This was 1999 and the industry was very small and I knew very little about what it was. Um, but basically the, the two most interesting paths that, that um, I started exploring out of banking were hedge fund investing or private equity investing. Those were kind of the two mm. growing new interesting places that really appealed to me. And, and so why did you choose private equity over being involved in hedge funds? Sure. And, and so I think that was something that just resonated more with my style of investing. So okay. I really liked the ability to dig deep, to meet management teams, to see strategy, to understand it, and to be a long-term investor. And that was uh, rather, I wish I could say I knew the industry would do well and have great performance <laughs> for 20 years. I, I knew none of those things. Um, but that style of investing resonated with me. And I was fortunate to have a good opportunity to go do that in, in the late 1990s when the industry was very small. Mm. If I'm not mistaken, you ended up with Bear Stearns, is that correct? Sure. Well, so I worked for two different private equity firms. I started um, started my private equity career with a firm that was based in Los Angeles with a middle market general partner That's firm. Right. Um, so I was there about five years. And then I had an opportunity within Bear Stearns to help build up a small buyout um, venture, or a start, small buyout platform within uh, the Bear Stearns platform, which was an exciting opportunity to come in and be part of something new and build something new. Of course, the challenges anyone looking back now will say is um, we only had one source of capital at the time. So it was great in that they wanted to fund all the deals that we wanted to do that we liked. Um, and I think we generated good performance, but ultimately that that um, platform when they got in trouble did not have the ability to fund long dated investments uh, <laughs> for a long period of time. Yeah. And that's, that's I guess that's um, what a lot of people uh, remember from Best Earns, obviously one of the names um, from the GFC. You started, with, if I'm not mistaken, Brian, you started with Hamilton Lane in 2009. Can you describe that environment for us? I think a lot of people are trying to flash back to it now that we're seeing a bit of volatility in markets and they're thinking, how is this similar? What is what is different? You know, how can we I don't know, learn from those lessons. But what was the environment like for you then as an investor and then transitioning across into private equity? Sure. Oh, sorry, so, so continuing that journey in private equity. Sure. Yes. Yeah. Um, yes. Yeah, so obviously, very interesting time. So I was, I was living and working in New York City at that point in time. So uh, the center of, of all of the troubles mm. uh, in, in the global financial crisis. And it was just a fascinating time. I think that um, it was scary for investors uh, of all shapes and sizes in all different strategies. Uh, I think investors had never seen anything like that in a really long period of time, the, the depth mm-hmm. and the breadth of the downturn. Um, so I think there were tons of lessons learned across all different asset classes. Um, I think obviously what feels very different in the current environment, despite all the public market volatility, um, is that you don't, it doesn't seem like you have a lot of the same underlying challenges with 
you know, bad credit buildup and, and some of the excesses that really were in play at that point in time. Um, but I, I think that coming out of that financial crisis, you really saw our asset class, the private equity asset class, really do phenomenally well and distinguish mm-hmm. itself in a big in a big way from the public markets, uh, where investors had gotten a bit tired of the volatility. Um, our asset class before the financial crisis was relatively small. It's still relatively small today, but it has grown pretty significantly since then. And I think it um, it's just a much more our, our asset class is just much more broadly understood um, probably than the, than at that point in time. Mm. So you you stepped across to Hamilton Lane, and this is where you are now. Um, can you explain? Uh, Evergreen Portfolios, which um, you're the head of Evergreen Portfolios today. Can you explain what a typical day looks like for you? Uh, sure. Yeah. And, and maybe I can do two things there. One, one is just talk a bit about our, our firm and what was yeah, attractive sure. about great. the platform when I joined. So I think today we're uh, we're over 500 employees globally. I think when I joined, we were about 140 employees. And as you looked out in the world uh, in 2009, uh, I was a huge believer in the asset class, as I told you earlier. I, I loved investing in the private markets. Um, it was clear that scale is really important in our asset class. You need resources. You need huge investment teams. You need data. You need analytics, all of those things. And mm-hmm. Hamilton Lane was a really attractive platform um, that looked like it was going to be a winner in an asset class that I believed in in long term. And um, that fortunately has has proven to be the case here uh, since I joined about 13 years ago. So that's been fun. Um, what I do today within the firm as, as head of Evergreen Portfolios, as you note, is that one of the um, rapidly growing parts of our business is expansion into the private wealth channel, or the high net worth channel. Mm-hmm. And the reason for that is historically, the private equity markets, the private markets have been really hard for investors to access because they're clunky and there's all kind of challenges that come with them, locked up funds and subscription agreements and, and huge minimums. But one of the innovations in our asset class the last couple of years has been fund structures that are a little bit easier for high net worth investors to invest in. And so we've organized a, a part of our business to be able to serve that market. Uh, and that's where I spend my time today, which is a mix of the investing side of, of the types of investments that we're investing in and also making sure that we have the right structures and strategies to be able to meet investor demand there. Hmm. How does that work, Brian? This is fascinating. So for, for context, for listeners who don't know, um, in many private equity funds, you can be locked up, meaning that you can you have to stay in for a set period of time because you're investing in illiquid assets. Uh, so Brian, how does it work then um, now that you've got you know so much expertise here? How does it work from a liquidity perspective, investors moving in and out of the funds, um, what are the considerations there? Sure. So, th- so the the structures are set up to make it easier for liquidity and for investor minimums and tax reporting and things like that. But they're not perfectly fully liquid like underlying stocks would be. And so, um, what it means is that there is a mechanism embedded in the fund to be able to provide some amount of liquidity each quarter to investors should they want it or need it. Um, but the entirety of the fund is not liquid at any given point. Um, what it does mean, though, is that investors are able to sc- subscribe to the asset class and put their money in the ground on the day that they want to. Um, they're buying into a fully built out portfolio, which is not the case when you invest into a close end fund and that money gets drawn down over time. Mm-hmm. And you also have um, then lower uh, investment minimums and easier tax and reporting and things like that. So it's um, it is just a way easier way for those investors to invest without some of the clunky mechanisms that come in traditional uh, long-lived 
drawdown funds. Mm. Is, it, you mentioned before, Brian, something about, about being a long-term investor, and that was kind of like in your DNA. Um, can you maybe just for investors to give us a sense of um, the difference between private and public markets? I, I read a study once that suggested that the average holding period or the median holding period of managers in, in, in public equities was around about 7.4 months. So maybe if that's your yardstick, um, maybe you can give us some context around how long you typically hold, stay in these positions for. Sure. Yeah. So in, in our asset class, in, in the equity component of that asset class, the average holds more like six years for an investment. So you think about that life, life cycle, it really is a different element of identifying an investment. Um, it's an active asset class, as you know. So the managers take control of those companies. They create a strategic plan. They drive business growth. Um, and then ultimately, they sell that investment uh, over a much longer period of time. And I think that gives you a lot more um, a lot more mechanisms to control the outcome of the investment relative to a public markets uh, investor. Mm. And I think that's a really good answer because I think a lot of investors think, well, are accustomed to, you know, just being very hands-off, not passive in the sense of active as passive as people would know it, but just passive in the sense of I'm a minority shareholder. I can't control it. I can't influence it. I'm just going to sit here and hope management does a good job. Whereas you're coming in and saying, well, no, we're actually going to be active here. We're going to improve the business. Uh, we're going to grow it, which is a strategic advantage. And you can do that because of your structure. Because I often see one of the shortcomings of managed funds or mutual funds um, is the inability to think long-term because you don't have the support, if that makes sense. I don't know if you share no, that sentiment. No, ab absolutely. I mean, it's just a key structural advantage for the asset class. The fact that there is locked up capital knowing that you can make a longer lived asset and do the things that you want to do with it and be patient with it to really drive that growth, I think is a huge contributor to the outperformance. Mm. One, and this is, this is the genesis of this conversation, Brian, is I received a, a, a media release and in that media release, um, from you, from Hamilton Lane, and basically just said that formed. I think, of the, from memory, what it had at the time was around about ten percent per annum over twenty years versus public markets. And I saw that, and I was, this is, I've got to know why. So um, maybe you can just, from a very high level, just to kind of explain private markets as a whole. I know you span the globe. However, you want to cut this up. Um, how you kind of draw the line in the sand of different types, like subsectors, et cetera. You're the first person that's taken us on this, on this trip. So okay. you're the field guide, Brian. Anything that you can add there to give us some context around the market? Sure. Well, I hope I do a good job then because there's, <laughs> no there's, um, it, there's not a lot of education out there on our asset class. There hasn't needed to be, um, and it is different. And, uh, and so hopefully I do a good job on this one. I, I think um, where you started, Owen, is right in terms of the, the asset class overall and the outperformance. I know we can get to specifics later, um, but the asset class has outperformed the private markets broadly, and I'll, I'll talk in a minute about specific segments of the private markets. Um, but really what, what all of the private markets um, categories share in common is that long-lived, patient, flexible capital. So think about the fact that when you're investing in the private markets, you're not just buying a share of a company. You might be funding money for a growth initiative that that company has. You might be helping them do mergers and acquisitions. Um, so the capital can be a bit more flexible. Uh, it has a much longer um, diligence time frame and ability to meet with management teams and understand the strategy and pack the strategy to really drive returns 
and growth. And the, the other reality is that there's a much bigger hunting ground than in the public market. So you think about the thousands upon thousands upon thousands of companies that are out there and the private markets are able to sort through and, and try to find those that they think are most interesting to really help drive that value creation. So there, there are a, a tremendous number of advantages relative to the public markets. In terms of the, the strategies, it's interesting. There's a lot of different terminal, terminology out there. Mm -hmm. I'm using the one private markets. Um, so when we talk about the private markets, uh, it's about a $7 trillion uh, asset base today. Um, that's a small percentage mm. of the overall capital markets, you know, mid, mid single digit percentage of the overall capital market. So it's small. And then within that, you have a number of different strategies. So um, one of the most commonly known is venture capital, right? People mm. understand what venture capital is. It's high growth, high risk companies, great outcomes if you do well, not so great outcomes if you do poorly. Um, that's, that's actually a relatively small segment of our market, somewhere between 10 and 15% of the overall market, but it gets a lot of the headline and the energy. And if it does well, it can do really well. Um, the biggest segment of our market, we would call the buyout market. Those are traditional control buyouts or leverage buyouts. Uh, that's about 40% of the overall market. Mm -hmm. That tends to be the most stable, steady performer across all different cycles. Um, not as great as venture in the best environments, but not as bad as venture in the worst environments. And that is a really a, a huge uh, core part of what our investors invest in. And then you have things like private credit, where increasingly banks have moved out of the lending space. Private credit has really shown uh, a lot of tailwinds in terms of taking market share and demonstrating pretty consistent and attractive performance. Um, so that's been a segment of the market. And then you have things like infrastructure, natural resources, real estate uh, that make up the balance of the asset class. See, a lot of people in Australia would know infrastructure because they see it in their superannuation or their pension funds. They see it and they think, oh, that's, you know, Melbourne Airport or something like this. They see something like that and they're like, oh, infrastructure, that makes sense, right? But there's so much more, Brian, to it. Can you give us a sense, maybe just in, in the US market, a sense of, and I'm jumping a bit ahead of myself, but mm -hmm. the difference between uh, the, like the, the, I guess the, the universe of potential investments in the, in the United States and private markets versus public markets, because it's pretty well established now that the number of publicly listed companies is falling. Um, and it seems like the universe in private markets is huge by comparison. I, th I think that's right. So I, I think the stat we have is that there's something like, 20,000 companies globally with revenues over $100 million. And this, this surprises people, but 90% of those are private. So those are pretty good sized businesses. They're, you know, mm. leaders. They're, that, that, that is a, a staggering statistic for people when you think about the investment universe. There are just so many more companies out there in the private markets. So while the public markets are, are shrinking in terms, of number, in terms of number of companies, the private markets are growing. And the number of uh, investment strategies within the private markets continues to expand. So that universe of opportunity really just continues to grow in a, in a very different way than the public market universe. Mm. Um, and we'll get to maybe a bit more of this in a minute. But before I mentioned that 10%, the 10% outperformance. Now, you, you started, you know, in this field, say, the 2000s. And in that time, we've seen credit, we've seen... Uh, interest rates unwind globally, and it's been a really conducive environment to growth assets. Um, 
I guess critics might say or cynics might say, might look at it and say, is this just interest rates unwinding, um, long duration assets, et cetera? How do you, where do you attribute, I guess, the, the outperformance of private versus public markets? Sure. Yeah. And so, so now we have the benefit of, of over 30 years of data of different market environments. And, and I think what you see is the private market outperformance is consistent in, in all different type of environments. I, and I attribute that to a lot of the characteristics um, that we talked about earlier. Interest rates is, is one that comes to mind for investors uh, in all asset classes. Mm-hmm. Um, and what I would say there um, are, are really two things. One is that uh, interest rates do impact valuations in our market the way that they do in the public markets. Not they haven't to the same magnitude, but the same type of approach, which is if interest rates rise rapidly uh, in a way that investors haven't expected, valuation multiples come down. And we have seen that as well. Um, however, what we see in our data is um, looking back at the asset class, the, the value creation in the private markets really comes from underlying fundamental earnings growth. So we do look at value attribution in terms of how are, how are the equity strategies generating return. And the vast majority upwards of the value creation comes from underlying earnings growth. That comes mm-hmm. from making the business better or growing it in a way that is driving earnings. It's ultimately driving return for those investors. Um, so I think that's really the key takeaway to us around the, the outperformance piece. Yeah, because I guess it, it's a, maybe it's um, a quite a localized thing here in Australia, but there's a lot of debate around this, right? There's a lot of debate around whether our pension funds should have so much in um, private markets because of whether they're mark to market or how the accounting is done. Um, but when you look back at the long-term pr- public market returns, right, it's, you know, earnings growth that drives businesses. It's the kind of the value creation of companies. So why should it be any different in private markets, right? How about in terms of the maturity of private markets, Brian. So you talked about like there's a lot of companies. Um, we talked about our performance and maybe where we can attribute that. Do you think that the kind of the maturity of the market, more investors entering, um, more awareness, do you think those factors play into the performance as well? Like there's, you know, more eyes on the same companies, meaning, you know, more advice to management, more consultation, better outcomes? Sure. Um, so it's interesting. I, I've heard a couple arguments on this one over time. It, the prevailing theme used to be that as private markets grow, the return just has to come down. It has to. It's an inefficient market and you're going to see it come down. Um, and we haven't seen it happen to date. Um, mm-hmm. The asset class has grown by something like 20 times, I think, almost since since I started in the, started uh, wow. over 20 years ago in the asset class. So um, a lot of growth there. And we haven't seen the returns um, come down overall. So I, I would say two things on that. Um, never, so I've been in the asset class a long time, never has the manager skill set been as good as it is today. The capabilities that the managers have today, because they've refined them and invested in their business and expanded their skill sets is better than ever. And that universe of things that they are looking for and specializing in is bigger than it ever has been. So it is competitive. It is not easy. Uh, there is more capital than there was before. But I think both the manager skill set and the potential universe of, of businesses is such that, um, you know, the, the industry performance going forward, you know, we think looks a lot like it has historically. Mm. And th- that's interesting because I, I feel like the holding periods matter a lot, right? Like in public markets, we see all the, the statistics out of S&P that show that active management um, for the most part underperforms the longer you go. But 
if we refer back to the the amount of rocks that are being turned over by public managers, um, I think that kind of lends itself to that hyper competitiveness where everyone's looking at the same thing and they're moving on to the next thing. Whereas in private markets, the longer duration assets, there's not as much turnover, which gives a chance, as you said, for the economics of businesses to play out, which is really fascinating to me. Um, I've, I've heard it said, Brian, that one of the things that private markets, that defines private markets, you know, a, 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 for context, like if you've got, say, 20,000 companies in private markets, they're not all for sale, whereas on the stock market, they are, right? You can buy and sell them. Um, how do you go about distilling that universe into, I guess, a manageable kind of deal flow? And can you walk us through that, in the investment process at large? Sure. Yeah. And, and you're right. So um, our asset class is not as simple as, you know, looking up tickers and, and figuring out what you'd like to buy and then, and then buying it. Yeah. Um, certainly there's a, there's a lot more work that goes uh, up front into that. Um, so that, that really entails a lot of, um, in, a lot of interaction. So you have to be on the ground um, meeting with companies, screening businesses. Um, ultimately, even once you start to find a company that you think is interesting, you have to do deep diligence um, mm-hmm. So really spend a lot of time understanding everything about that business. Um, and then you start negotiating to get a transaction done. And then the work begins, right? We just talked mm-hmm. about this active management of owning a business for six years and helping drive the value creation. So getting the deal done is just step one of really ultimately that value creation. So it is a, a people intensive business model. Um, so mm-hmm. you, you do see that in terms of the manager's time and energy, and there's not an unlimited number of investments anyone can make in a given year. Um, we're, we're really fortunate in that we have built a, a great global network of managers that we partner with in a variety of ways. So um, that they're doing a lot of that legwork on the ground when it comes to the things that we're investing in. But it, it is a very different and much more resource intensive than uh, other forms of investing for sure. Mm. Um, can you maybe just give us some context, Brian? It's probably worth int- introducing. Um, here in Australia, you've got a, you've got a team. And um, obviously, a global network. You said five hundred professionals are around around the world. Can you give us um, a sense of, I guess, for, for just this is basically just asking you, like, what does Hamilton Lane offer to Australian investors to get them exposure to the asset mm-hmm. class? Sure. Yeah. So, um, I'll give you an example of a um, of a, a type of investment that we invested in about about a year ago. So, I mentioned uh, earlier that. Uh, we do investments in lots of different shapes and sizes and lots of different strategies mm. across all the areas I just described to you, by the way. So I'm going to focus on an equity investment, a buyout type investment, because that was uh, where we said the biggest part of the industry is. Um, effectively, the way that it works for us is there is a manager that we've uh, invested with in the past. We're an investor in their fund. So they have a blind pool fund they invest in. We've been a co-investor with them before, which means they have had transactions they needed more capital for. And they came to us as a, as a value partner and said, would you like to invest in this deal? And we've done secondary investments with them, which means we're, we're buying existing ownership stakes in their fund from other investors that want liquidity. So a manager that we know well um, has an opportunity where they've been targeting a logistics business. Uh, this is in, in 2021. Um, the company was public, but looking to go private. The manager had been diligencing it for some period of months because they thought the theme of logistics was interesting. It was a business segment that they specifically had expertise in. They had done a number of transactions in the logistics space. So they had a very specific thesis on why buying this business at this point in time was attractive and what they could do with it. 
And so they, they call a couple of other investors like us that are their value partner and say, here's our thesis. Here's all the work that we've done. Accounting diligence, environmental diligence, consulting report, management assessments, all of those things. Um, and they give us a period of, of weeks generally to run through all of that work um, to make our own determination whether we like the business and we like their thesis with them as the, the governing shareholder. And, and then ultimately we decided we did and we, we go through that closing process as, uh, as one of their partners. So that um, for us, that means we have a deal team of three to four people that are spending over 50% of their time for weeks on end on this one investment opportunity that we're, we're making an investment in. So it is, a, it is an intensive process, even for us when we have terrific partners like that. Mm. Yeah, I, um, I've, I've been looking at the the monthly commentary from the Global Private Assets Fund. I believe it is. Okay. Yeah, and um, anyone, if you're listening to this, you can you can access that. I'll put a link in the show notes, and you can go and read, and you can see what's in the fund. And it's really interesting because a lot of these businesses are very well established businesses, right? Like I here in Australia, maybe it's just me and the circles that I roll in, Brian. Um, they tend to be small businesses like micro private businesses. Mm-hmm. And I speak to a lot of medium sized businesses, but these are, you know, large businesses, like many of the businesses. And there's a actual, if you are interested in diving deep into this, I would highly encourage you to check out uh, on Hamilton Lane's website. Once again, I'll put it in the show notes. Um, there is a guide, an interactive guide that you can work through that explains how the asset class works, which um, I found very valuable. So um, that's a really good insight into how this, the mechanisms come together. And like you just said, like that's a deal that one instance, how people can understand the flow. Um, I've got a couple of closing questions here, Brian, uh, if, if I may, which is, uh, these are a bit tongue in cheek. I've got a, these are a bit more like, kind of like asking you to grab onto the crystal ball, st- stare into it a little bit. Um, because obviously we've heard that private markets have grown rapidly over a very long period of time. And I think you, kind of touched on this earlier on, which is, do you think that private markets can continue to grow the way that they are? Like, do you think this is early days? Like, where do you think we are on that journey? Sure. So, so I, I do think they can continue to grow. That shouldn't surprise you given, given my bias here. <laughs> yeah. um, but but uh, to my earlier point, we've seen really good performance across all kinds of environments with less volatility than the public markets. I think uh, education and awareness of our asset class has also increased in a really big way. Mm-hmm. Um, when there wasn't a lot of data, when there wasn't a lot of analytics on the asset class, it was harder for investors to understand. And so we're seeing institutional investors allocate more of their portfolios into the private markets. They recognize that they like the performance, they can withstand the illiquidity that comes with it. And back to our earlier point, Owen, um, the asset class is just starting to open up for more of the high net worth channel. And Mm -hmm. that's a place where you know, high worth uh, has has relatively small allocations to the asset class today. A, a 1% increase uh, in, in that allocation of the private markets would grow our asset class by 10% on its own. So um, in addition to the existing investor base, I think there are other investors out there that will, will move into the asset class and help fuel that continued growth. I'm actually, I'm actually going up to, and I know you, because you studied in Australia for a while, Brian, I'm actually going up to Queensland um, over the weekend and I'm catching up with a bunch of asset consultants and really um, like some of the best financial advisors in the country. And um, I know that there are some advisors there who deliberately now allocate around 50% of their exposure to asset classes in uh, unlisted or private markets. They try and get that exposure for that volatility protection, but also just for the opportunity set. And I think we're going to, this is just my 
you know, uh, prognostication, I guess. I'm, I'm just sitting here thinking that I think we're going to see more of that. And particularly, like you said, in the high net worth space, um, it already happens in Australia, but I think it's going to continue to happen. So that's really interesting too. And I, with that, we'll get better analytics. We'll get so many other things that come along with it. Um, my final question here is, and this is once again, Brian, just a bit of tongue in cheek, but it's, it's the, I guess it's the, the topic that is on everyone's mind. And particularly when we talk about unlisted assets or um, private assets where liquidity is uh, the topic of concern for many of them. Um, which is also the opportunity, I guess. Uh, do, do you see rising interest rates um, as being a good or bad factor for private markets? And maybe we'll just take a five-year view on that. So it's kind of a little bit of a way out. Uh, how do you see that impacting the sector? Sure. So um, so I think in the short term, huge changes in interest rates are, are bad for current performance in the private markets, just like it is in the public markets, right? Uh, valuations come down. Um, okay. However, I would say that once expectations change for what interest rates are, valuations get reset very quickly. So for existing investments, the big change in interest rates this year that was unexpected is not a welcome development. It hurts performance. Uh, but now that means every new investment that is getting made in our asset class uh, has already factored in those higher interest rates. And ultimately, that means buying at lower valuations, which I think potentially provides a, t a tailwind to future mm -hmm. returns uh, for the equity segment. The other thing I would say is um, within the private credit space in particular, private credit tends to be floating rate investments. So private credit investments are actually already benefiting from the, the rise, in, uh, the rise right. in interest rates. And that's been a feature of that market that investors have uh, really embraced, as you might imagine, mm -hmm. in, uh, in the current environment. For sure they have. Uh, Brian, if people here in Australia wanted to learn more about Hamilton Lane, about Evergreen Portfolios, where can they go? Uh, I, I think you had the, the best reference earlier on, which is our website. So uh, we have great content on our website. We are a publicly traded company. We have great information around our firm. Uh, we want to be a resource to investors in the asset class because we think more education, mm -hmm. more analytics, more data just, just helps us all. So uh, go into our website's the best place, www.hamiltonlane.com. Great. Thank you, Brian. I really appreciate you taking the time out after hours uh, on your Tuesday, recording this with me here in Australia. Thank you. It's been a pleasure. For more than a decade, I've been hunting for the best investors and their methods, strategies, and tools for investing. After years in the industry, countless books, a few degrees, and 1,000 podcasts and live shows, I've rolled this accumulated knowledge into something called Rask Invest. If you've ever heard me talk about a core and a satellite, active and passive, true long-term compounding, or you simply want to know exactly how I would invest... Now is your chance. Rask Invest is our new investment service, designed for all types of investors who want professional management of their core portfolio at a low cost from a team they trust. Rask Invest helps you automate your wealth creation and passive income. Simply click the link that says Invest with Owen in your podcast player to join one of our live platform walkthroughs or book a call with us. You can also view the Rask Invest PDS and TMD and get invested with me.